the Dead Sea Scrolls are um, ancient scrolls dating to about the time of Jesus, right? Mainly first century BC, first century AD, around there, that were discovered. Originally, the first were discovered by accident um, in caves near the northwest shore of the Dead Sea in the vicinity of an archaeological site called Qumran. And uh, the scrolls apparently had been deposited in those caves by people who lived during the time of Jesus at the site of Qumran. So this represents, the scrolls represent literature that they used. Some of it they wrote themselves, not all of it, not even most of it, but represents literature that, that they used, read, and then deposited those scrolls in the, in the nearby caves. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host, John Williamson, and we're back this week. This is a really cool one for me uh, as a super history nerd. Uh, we have on our first ever archaeologist, so I'm pretty pretty excited to uh, to release these two. And, and again, this will be in two parts, so part one will be this week, part two will be next week. Uh, but super thrilled to have this particular guest on just because we've never really approached uh, Christianity, religion, whatever, uh, from the archaeological standpoint. And there is a very big difference between archaeology and, and history, and we talk about that in this episode. But um, before we get to that, a few few things, few housekeeping things uh, for all things Deconstructionist podcast. If you're if you're new here, uh, we have a great website, uh, www.thedeconstructionist.com. And there you can link to uh, social media, you can read uh, blog posts, you can uh, stream uh, directly from the website all of our entire back catalog of, uh, I think we're over 150-something odd episodes now going back uh, over seven years, believe it or not. Adam reminded me of that the other day, and I thought, that's absolutely insane. Uh, doesn't feel like that long, but here we are. Time stops for no one. Uh, but yeah, the website, it's got links to our, our merchandise store. It's got links to our Patreon, uh, Patreon, uh, definitely been doing a ton over there recently. So, uh, if you want early access to complete uncut and unedited episodes, so instead of waiting for two weeks for part one and part two, you can listen to the entire interview, uh, literally uncut, not edited. I, I just clean it up and throw it up there for you. You can, uh, gain access to that, uh, if you, uh, sign up for any of the um, Patreon levels, I think at $5 or higher, I think is where we have it set. So, But all sorts of fun stuff on there. Uh, we've got a Book of the Month Club. We've got all sorts of new merch that can now uh, be shipped internationally. It automatically does it through Patreon, which is a very nice addition that they've they've added over the years. So, um, And then an early access to all the blogs and uh, uh, got a bunch of – working on a bunch of photos from going way back – um, that um, going to start loading up there as well, so you can kind of see some of the behind the scenes stuff and Adam and I being goofy from back in the day and all sorts of stuff. So uh, lots going on over there. So if you want to uh, help support the podcast and the costs associated with it, um, you, you get early access to all that sorts of fun stuff. So anyway, with that being said, this week we have on Jody Magnus, Doctor Jody Magnus, who is the Keenan Distinguished Professor. Uh, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She is a classical and bib biblical archaeologist specializing in ancient Palestine, so modern Israel, Jordan, and the Palestinian territories from the time of Jesus up to the 10th century. Her research interests include Jerusalem, Qumran, and the Dead Sea Scrolls, which we talk a lot about. 
ancient synagogues, Masada, the Roman army in the East, ancient pottery, the Byzantine early Islamic transition, and diaspora Judaism in the Roman world. She has participated on over 20 excavations in Israel and in Greece, including co-directing the 1995 excavations in the Roman siege works at Masada. Since 2011, she's directed excavations at, I'm going to butcher this one, oof, Hukok in Israel's Galilee, which are bringing to light a monumental late Roman 5th century synagogue paved with stunning mosaics. And she's got more information on her website that you can link to there. She's also published uh, several books, including Masada, From Jewish Revolt to Modern Myth, and The Archite... Arch- oh, boy. This is hard, guys. This is really... Talking is hard. The Archaeology of Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls 2nd Edition came out in 2021. And she's currently working on a new book on Jerusalem through the ages. Uh, she's also a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and past president of the Archaeological Institute of America. And just fascinating, fascinating interview. Um, and again, never never really approached this from the archaeological perspective. And that's really the physical evidence side of things. And so what does the evidence tell us about uh, the time of Jesus and um, what can we know? What can we learn from that? So we get all into that. Uh, again, this is part one. Uh, before we get to that, I want to thank uh, Forrest Clay, or our, fra- our, our friend Clay Kirchenbauer. Boy, talking is real hard today. Um, but I want to thank him again, his continued support of the podcast and him allowing us to use his, his uh, tunes, specifically written about his own personal deconstruction. Uh, in the intro and outro of every episode. So appreciate his support uh, and also all the people going way back uh, who helped support the podcast in various ways from uh, the the various individuals who helped design the t-shirts to um, to, uh, Ryan uh, who helped design the website and uh, Jared Hevron who who took all the, the pretty pictures. So, uh, so thank you to all of them, uh, all of their, uh, information uh, I, I put in the show notes. So if you're interested in any sort of uh, help in that regard, like if you need a website designed or if you need uh, photography done or if you need um, you know graphic design work done, uh, put all their information in the show notes. So go show them some love. Go listen to Clay's Pretty Music. Uh, support him there. Uh, and without further ado, this is part one with Jody freaking Magnus. Better day a distance now I am not sure what I've all right welcome to the podcast I'm so excited to have our first ever archaeologist Jody Magnus thank you so much for coming on thank you for having me absolutely so tell me a little bit tell listeners first of all a little bit about your background and how did you get into the field that you are in today Oh, well, (laughs) Uh, I wanted to be an archaeologist since I was 12, Uh, thanks, at least in large part, to a very good seventh grade uh, history teacher who introduced us to the ancient world. And I fell in love with ancient Greece and particularly Athens, sort of was interested in the classical world ever since. And I was going to Girl Scout camp and finding fossils of shells. And anyway, so all came together and I decided I wanted to be an archaeologist. Um, I ended up uh, doing my undergraduate degree in archaeology and history at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and then a PhD in classical archaeology, which means Greek and Roman archaeology, at the University of Pennsylvania. 
and, you know, then ended up with an academic career. And since 2002, I've been at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill um, in, of all things, a Department of Religious Studies, um, because there are no departments of archaeology at universities in North America, meaning a department where all different kinds of archaeologists teach in the same department. So generally, archaeologists end up teaching, if we get academic appointments, end up in a department that uh, somehow relates to the kind of archaeology that we do. And so if you think I work in Israel, specializing in the time of Jesus, then kind of biblical archaeology, blah, blah. So I'm in a department of religious studies. That's that's interesting. That's something I would have even uh, thought about. Um, it, it's strange that in North America, of all places, of all the universities, that that's not, that's yeah. not the case. No, yeah. that's right. Yeah, there used to be one uh, archaeology department, um, and that was at Boston University. And they eliminated that department somewhere between five to 10 years ago. So, um, and that was it. There are other departments of archaeology, but they're not, they're like Near Eastern archaeology or whatever. So they're not like all the different kinds of archaeologists in one department. Oh, man. So, so talk a little bit about archaeology, um, you know, in, in the sense that it it's obviously different from, you know, being an archaeologist is different, obviously, from being a historian but explain to people <laughs> what those differences are. <laughs> right. Well, thank you for saying that, actually, because um, it's funny. When I interviewed for the position at UNC uh, about a little over 20 years ago, uh, during the interview process, um, one of my colleagues, who I really love a lot, um, kept insisting that I was an historian. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, no, I'm an archaeologist. So like, no, you're an historian. It, it, it actually wasn't until recently that I realized that because because from his point of view, and I think this is true of a lot of scholars, at least, uh, history is the study of the human past. And in that sense, archaeology would be history, right? But when you get down to it, archaeologists use uh, different sources of information to study the human past than historians do. Um, so I guess, I mean, I, I view archaeology as an independent discipline, but I suppose if you, you use your, if your definition of history is the study of the human past, then it would encompass archaeology. But I don't see archaeology as a subdiscipline of, of history. So there's the difference. But, um, you know, historians would, would study the past drawing mainly, if not only, on, um, on written records, right? Whatever people wrote, that, right, the records that people wrote, which is great, uh, except that we don't have written records for all periods of time throughout the world. And also the people who tended to write whatever we have were generally um, male and upper class. And so we learn about what interested them and their perspectives from their biases. Uh, but we don't generally hear about, you know, from other parts of the population, which was a majority. Uh, and, um, and we don't hear about things that they weren't interested in. And then there are, of course, huge chunks of time and space where we don't have any historical records at all. So archaeology, in that sense, gives us a more complete uh, picture of the human past often complements what we learn from history or uh, supplements it, sometimes gives us our only information. Um, and now for a little definition of archaeology. So archaeology is the study of the human past um, based on human material, uh, human material culture. So meaning, meaning that archaeologists study anything that people manufactured and left behind. We dig that stuff up. 
And so think about houses or tombs or tools or pottery or whatever. So anything that people manufactured and left behind, we dig that up, we study it, and we learn about people from, from what they manufactured and used and left behind. Um, and so there's a lot of different kinds of information that we get from archaeology. Um, but one of the things that's important to remember is that although archaeology is a science, um, it doesn't answer all questions. It's not equipped to answer all questions. And it's just like any other science. You have to know what kinds of questions to ask uh, and in order to be able to get information, right? So it's not like, oh, I'm just going to dig stuff up and, and it's going to you know, tell me everything that I don't know kind of a thing, right? Yeah. It, it almost feels like, in a sense, like the relationship between history and archaeology is almost like very similar to the relationship uh, say between like a detective and the CSI agent who's just simply looking at the, yeah. And, and, and but yeah. To, the two have to work together. Yeah. That's to kind right. Of the full picture. I love that. Right. Yeah. That's kind of, that's, that's interesting. Although the, my one qualification would be that, um, that, you know, the archeologists don't rely on the historians to do the interpretation for us. In other yeah. words, right. Yeah. So, so it's there two again there are two separate disciplines that have their own methodologies and of course um we should uh, we do usually and should use the different kinds of information together to to get as complete a picture as possible of the past and of course um many archaeologists if not most if not all are trained also in historical methods for example I do classical again greek and roman so obviously I've I've been trained in I'm not a specialist but I've been trained in the ancient languages and in the literature and you know other aspects of those ancient civilizations so it's not like I'm just digging up pieces of pottery and and looking at them without any context right uh, and similarly one would hope that our historic you know our colleagues who are historians are also you know drawing on the archaeological evidence when they um, you know, study a particular time or place, right? Yeah. So, so talk a little bit about um, sort of the tools of the trade and, and what sort of the everyday aspect looks like. Because I think most people's uh, experience or, or, or notion of what an archaeologist is, is, you know, Indiana Jones punching yeah. Nazis. You know, and I'm assuming you're not doing that uh, day by day. No. Yeah. So, you know, um, so I hate to, I hate to burst people's bubbles, but we are not treasure hunters, um, and we do not get to keep what we find. Uh, so whatever I find, for example, whatever I dig up in Israel uh, belongs to the state of Israel. Um, and so I don't, I don't, you know, we don't dig up stuff so that we can, you know, like sell it and get rich of it or keep it or whatever. Um, and and um, what it looks like, I mean, so obviously, so, okay. So as, let me explain it as a science. So as scientists... An archaeologist um, has come approaches the study of the past with certain research questions, right? Like right now, I have a dig in Galilee where I am conducting an excavation. The site is called Hukok. Uh, I'm actually leaving for Israel tomorrow for the summer, and we're going to start our dig season in a couple of weeks. And I started this dig in 2011. Hukok is an ancient Jewish village in Galilee, just a couple of miles away from Capernaum, which was the base of Jesus's Galilean ministry and Migdal, ancient Magdala, the hometown of Mary Magdalene. So I'm kind of in the middle of Jesus central. Um, so I started this dig in 2011 because I had a couple of research questions that I wanted to, 
to answer, and I was hoping to answer by digging up the data to answer the questions. And in this case, my, my big research question was, what was the fate of Jewish villages like Hukok, which we know was a Jewish village in the Roman period? What was the fate of Jewish villages in this region when um, Christianity became the legal and official religion of the Roman Empire and these Jewish settlements came under Christian rule? And the reason that was my research question is because many of my Israeli colleagues think that Jewish settlements uh, declined and, and some of them even disappeared in this fourth, fifth, sixth centuries um, because Christian rule was oppressive in their opinion to the Jews. And my impression from the archaeology was always exactly the opposite, that uh, these settlements continued to flourish and prosper through the fourth, fifth, and sixth centuries. So I came to Hukok hoping to answer that kind of big question. And in the case of what we're digging up at Hukok, we have pretty good evidence now that, in fact, at least Hukok did continue to prosper and flourish through the fourth, fifth, and sixth centuries. Doesn't mean that every settlement did, but at least at ours it did. Um, and so that was what I was hoping to answer. So, so in the course of, of excavation, we've dug up um, remains of the houses that these people lived in. We've dug up remains of an amazing monumental synagogue that was built somewhere around the year 400 AD, paved with extraordinary mosaic floors depicting an array of biblical stories. Um, if, you're, if your listeners are interested, we have a website, hukok.org. Hukok is spelled in a really weird way in English. It's H-U-Q-O-Q. Uh, so hukok.org. Um, and so so basically what the process looks like is that we, in my case, we dig for one month every summer, pretty much month of June. Um, we've, again, been digging there one month every summer since 2011, although we had two hiatus years during COVID. And the rest of the year is spent processing and working on publication of that material. And that's what people don't realize. They don't realize that uh, that um, the goal of archaeology is not excavation. Excavation is the means by which we retrieve the data that we hope will answer our research questions. But archaeology is also a destructive process. In the course of excavation, we destroy the remains that we dig up because you can never put them back the way they were. Once you, you've dug it up, it's done, that's gone. And so the most important part of archaeology is not the excavation, it's the publication after the excavation. You have to take all the data that you've effectively destroyed in the course of your scientific process. And then you have to publish it in order to make it accessible to everybody else because you've destroyed the past in the name of science effectively. Um, and so, uh, so um, this summer uh, is actually going to be my last year digging at Hukok. Uh, and the reason is because we will have finished excavating the synagogue building and the mosaics, and we have, I now have three shipping containers filled with material at Kibbutz Amiyad in Israel, on the grounds of Kibbutz Amiyad, and all that material needs to be processed and published. It's going to take years to complete that process. So, yeah, so, so you asked what it looks like. That's what it looks like. It's a lot of work. At, the excavation is fun. It's fun. It's tiring, and it's really hard to raise money to do it, but anyway, it's fun. But then uh, afterwards is it really the long process of publication. And it's long because it involves lots and lots of different specialists who are each publishing their body of information. I have an animal bone specialist and a pottery specialist and a coin specialist and a glass specialist and a specialist on ancient flora, you know, the ancient plant matter and, you know, blah, blah, on and on and on. And every single person has to, you know, write up their particular part, study their 
part of the data, write it up, and then ultimately, you know, we put it all together and publish it as an excavation report. That's, yeah, that's, that's completely different than what I would have ever even imagined. And, and, you know, you see, like, for, for example, recently, we have a, we have a really solid science museum here. uh, That's, for the most part, geared towards kids, but I, I enjoy it. They always have good um, exhibits, rotating exhibits. And they had a, an exhibit on uh, fair uh, King Tutankhamun yeah. uh, came through recently. And it was really kind of interesting to see like how the discovery was made. And so you think of these, these teams of people who are just like digging inch by inch right. layer by layer and just gently like dusting things off, um, you know? Yeah. I hate, I hate to burst your bubble on that by the way, but um but on pretty much on uh, historical period digs in the Mediterranean world in the Near East, we do not dig with, with dental tools, uh, except <laughs> in very specific circumstances. No, seriously, most of our digging is done with big tools, with, with, with picks and hoes and shovels and wheelbarrows. Uh, and it's, it's only when we're in very specific contexts that we use really small tools. Um, so like in our case, when we get very close to the mosaic floor, you know, then we start to start to go to small tools, but, um, it depends, but, you know, for most of the time, the work is being done with big tools. So I think it looks like kind of like a construction site actually. Oh, wow. Yeah. So like, you know, you've been doing this for a while. And so obviously, you know, as technology advances, I'm sure that's, uh, you know, great, great aid yeah. in your, in your process. So in what ways has technology advanced to where you can potentially, identify potential objects in the ground or, or per, perhaps um, avoid accidentally destroying something in the process? Like, are there scanners or, or like some sort of devices where that you use now that maybe weren't available to you, you know, 20, 30 years ago? We don't, we don't have anything quite like that on air. I mean, there is, for example, GPR, ground penetrating radar. So sometimes people will, you know, go across a site that's not excavated yet and, um, see if there are subsurface remains that you can detect with the GPR, right? So it might indicate that there are lines of walls or something like that. The, you know, we couldn't use that in my, in my case at my site before we started excavation because uh, our site was covered with heaps of rubble and GPR doesn't work in a context like that. And then there are also funding issues. You have to pay for that kind of technology. Um, there, I mean, what we are using, and this is not anything like that any nobody else is using or anything, but I mean everybody's doing this. You know, we a lot of 3D modeling now that you can do with you know with lidar and stuff like that, right? You can recreate spaces that. Um, so it's not detecting things under the ground, but it's you know it's helping to reconstruct what was there in kind of a three dimensional way. Um, very old technology uh, that that many of my Israeli colleagues do, and I've been resistant is uh, using um, metal detectors. Um, and they all want me to use metal detectors and I've resisted because I don't like the idea of like using metal, but, but actually in some cases it does make sense to use metal detectors. Um, so, you know, and then of course everything, I mean, technology, everything that we're doing now is we're, we're working with iPads in the field. You know, we used to do everything hard copy, right? So now everything goes right into the iPad. We have a database, everything's auto, you know, automatically entered into a computer system even in the field, right? So that's a big difference. There are, I will say, there are other uh, projects that are using more technology than we're using um, and using it, you know, very well. Um, but, you know, that, so we're, we're using, you know, things that, that aren't particularly extraordinary or 
you know, super advanced at this point. Um, but that, yeah. <laughs> tried, tried and true. Sometimes. Yeah. The old tried and true. Way. And, you know, look, I've been doing, I mean, it's kind of, well, anyway, I'm, I'm kind of, I don't know. I don't want to say old school, but you know, uh, I've been doing okay. things a certain way for a very long time and, and it's worked well. And, you know, so anyway, if somebody else was coming along now and starting the dig from scratch, they might do things a little bit differently in terms of, uh, drawing on more of the technology or whatever, but there's also, I mean, as I said, there's also uh, funding issues because technology isn't cheap. And so, um, you know, I do what I can afford to do, basically. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, um, I mean, my, my current my I, my current dig season is uh, a half a million dollars for one one dig season. Wow. And that's, so, and you yeah. said that's literally a, a month. That's a month. And I have to raise wow. all that money pretty much myself. So, um, yeah. Uh, I mean, anyway. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, that's that's a big piece of it, obviously. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so tell people a little bit about, you know, I, I know some of the things that would come to mind, uh, some of the questions that would, would probably pop up initially for, for folks listening would be, you know, archaeological uh, finds like, you know, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example, and the significance of that. So, uh, I know you've you've written some on that. So so talk a little bit about like how big of a deal was that and why was it so important? Well, probably depends on who you ask, but the Dead Sea Scrolls have been uh, described as the greatest archaeological discovery of the 20th century. Hmm. Uh, and I, I don't I don't think that's necessarily uh, incorrect. Um, they were certainly uh, significant. I, I do think that most people, or I don't shouldn't say most, many people uh, don't understand exactly what the Dead Sea Scrolls are. So what I do think is that, you know, pretty much everyone has heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, but I think a lot of people don't know exactly what they are and why they're important, right? That's so uh, a little bit about that. So the Dead Sea Scrolls are um, ancient scrolls dating to about the time of Jesus, right, mainly 1st century B.C., 1st century A.D., around there, that were discovered, originally the first were discovered by accident um, in caves near the northwest shore of the Dead Sea in the vicinity of an archaeological site called Qumran. And uh, the scrolls apparently had been deposited in those caves by people who lived during the time of Jesus at the site of Qumran. So this represents, the scrolls represent literature that they used. Some of it they wrote themselves, not all of it, not even most of it, but represents literature that, that they used, read, and then deposited those scrolls in the, in the nearby caves. Um, as I said, the first scrolls were discovered by accident. Um, this was when a Bedouin boy, a local nomad, wandered into one of these caves uh, in the winter spring of 1946, 1947, um, this cave we call Cave One, the Bedouins found, um, ultimately found and removed seven complete or nearly complete scrolls from that cave, Cave One, um, which eventually legally came into the possession of the state of Israel. And those are the scrolls that are displayed now in the Shrine of the Book in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. Subsequently, other scrolls, remains of other scrolls were found in other caves, um, ultimately, the remains of approximately a thousand different scrolls were found in 11 caves around Qumran. 
Uh, but most of those are, are fragments, small fragments surviving from what were originally complete scrolls. So you have to imagine that originally there were about a thousand scrolls in these 11 caves, but over the course of the last 2000 years, they disintegrated into lots of little fragments and that's what we mostly have. Um, so a lot of that, that material, the not cave one material, but the later material was, um, was discovered after the initial discovery when archaeolog an archaeological expedition was organized to explore the area of Qumran and the caves there. And that expedition was organized and led by a French biblical scholar and archaeologist named Roland DeVoe, who was based in Jerusalem at the time. Um, and uh, he was the one who ultimately put together a team to study and publish all of those different scroll fragments from not Cave 1, but the other caves, the other 10 caves. And also he excavated the site of Qumran itself. That was all done in the 1950s. Um, and uh, so what, what DeVoe found does suggest, and this is a, I'll say a, a majority view, everything about the Dead Sea Scrolls in Qumran is, is controversial, but a majority view, which I agree with, is that the people who lived at Qumran were members of a Jewish sect um, I agree with many scholars that they are to be identified with the Essenes who were mentioned in some of our ancient historical sources. And they, again, are the ones who uh, use these scrolls, who own the scrolls, um, and who deposited them in the 11 caves around Qumran. Uh, so, so that's sort of the background. Now, what exactly what are the scrolls then? The scrolls are basically all works of Jewish religious literature. Uh, about a quarter of them are copies of books of the Hebrew Bible, what you might call the Old Testament. And all of the books of the Hebrew Bible are represented by at least one copy, not necessarily complete, but, you know, fragments. Uh, so all of the books of the Hebrew Bible are represented by at least one copy, uh, except for the book of Esther, which isn't represented by even a single fragment. So it's not clear if it was never there or it was there, but not preserved or whatever. Um, but we do have all the others. And then uh, a lot of the other scrolls are not books of the Hebrew Bible, but are books that are related to biblical literature. So, for example, um, translations of the biblical books into Aramaic. There are also a few fragments of the Greek translation. Um, commentaries on books of the Hebrew Bible. Um, paraphrases of books of the Hebrew Bible. There's all sorts of, you know, literature that's kind of what we call parabiblical, kind of related to biblical, but not exactly biblical. Anyway, so there's a lot of that there. And then there are uh, some scrolls that are what we describe as sectarian, meaning scrolls that describe the beliefs and practices of the sect that lived at Qumran and deposited the scrolls in the caves. And, um, and they, they're the ones that give us really the valuable information about their distinctive beliefs and practices and worldview. Uh, some of these scrolls, examples of these scrolls would include the Damascus document, the community rule, the war scroll. Um, and we learn from these scrolls that this was an apocalyptic sect that believed the end of days was either at hand or was about to arrive that there was going to be a big apocalyptic war at the end of days, a 40-year-long war between the forces of light and the forces of, of darkness. They were the light, the good, the others were, everybody else would be darkness, and that uh, the ultimate outcome of this war was assured, victory for the sons of light, and that would then lead to the establishment of God's kingdom on earth, which of course is the end game of, of an apocalyptic scenario. 
So, uh, so that's basically what, you know, what the scrolls are, what we learn about from the scrolls. I think a lot of people in the general public have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls because I think in the popular imagination, a lot of people think they have something to do with Jesus and the New Testament. And that's not exactly true. They tell us about, so they don't directly relate to Jesus or the New Testament. And there's no copies of New Testament and no references to Jesus among the Dead Sea Scrolls. But what the scrolls are valuable for is shedding light on a Jewish sect that lived in the time of Jesus, describing their beliefs and practices, which help better put Jesus into his context, his Jewish context, right? Because ultimately Jesus is, is a Jew and uh, ultimately his views reflect, you know, viewpoints that either are similar to in some cases or different from the viewpoints of other Jews who lived in that period. And so this gives us additional information to round out that picture and, and again, better understand Jesus in his context. Does God have a face? Does he have a body or even a name? If he does, does he know that I'm
Katina, and Ahmed or Mildred, or Ross and his husband, Gus and their children, face like a Kim, a Ted or Tyrone, a Lucy born with an extra chromosome, a Pablo with legs he can't move by himself. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.